Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you that it is good and that it is living and that through it you speak to us. We pray that we will have ears that are willing and ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to imagine that you are walking through the bush, through a wild section where there are no particular paths, where you're far from civilization. And what you find there is a garden, or at least it appears to be a garden, because how else could it arise? It couldn't just be by chance that all these shrubs and trees are nicely laid out, one of each kind, so that people can go and look at the different ones. It wouldn't just be by chance that there might be streams in different channels feeding those trees as well, and a nice grassy area uh, for you to sit and enjoy. It certainly wouldn't be by chance if you found a picnic table and a toilet block there as well, would it? If you were to walk through the bush and find such a garden... You would ask, well, who made it and why? Well, today we see God's garden. He made it. And this amazing passage of creation in chapter, Genesis chapter 2 tells us why he made it and who he made it for. Now, last week in Genesis chapter 1, uh, we saw creation from a cosmic scale, as if you were in a spaceship with a camera pointed at the heavens, seeing everything that God has made. But now, chapter 2 tells the same story, but from a much more intimate human scale, as if someone has zoomed right in to see the close details. Here, creation is focused on human beings, on men and women. And it tells us a lot about God, and a lot about each other as well. First of all, God is the one who creates the garden. But before he does that, he creates a gardener for it. Our first point there in verses 4 to 7. At first, there is nothing. There is not a garden. There are no plants, there's no rain, there's no one to work the ground. And working the ground was a very important idea for ancient Near Eastern cultures. In fact, in some of them, the gods would carry out agriculture and irrigation before they created humans. In fact, it was the work of some of the lesser gods to do this. And they got tired of it, and so they rebelled and created people to do the work for them. This is not how God creates here. He creates the man from the dust, there in verse 7, and breathes the breath of life. It's such a close, intimate example of how God is involved in his creation. How people become a living being according to this account. But he needs something for this man to do. And so verses 8 and 9, God plants a garden. Notice he doesn't send the man out to go and plant. God plants the garden. There in the east, in Eden, in verse 8, and puts the man in it. In verse 9, all sorts of trees are growing, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But there are two trees in particular that are singled out for special attention, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
It's not as though these are magic trees, though. These are trees that represent God's intentions for the garden and for people as well. He is the one who plants them. He is the one who's in control of them. The tree of life, it represents God's desire to give life to people, to be the one who continues to sustain them. But what about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is that there? What is its function? Why put this stone that people are destined to trip over there in the first place? Well, the knowledge of good and evil that is being talked about here is human autonomy. Humans being a a law unto themselves. In fact, humans deciding to be their own gods, their own kings, rather than listening to the true God and true king. You see, what's forbidden here is for the man to decide for himself what's in his best interests, rather than listen to God. Now, of course, we have consciences. Of course, we have decisions to make. But according to the Bible, those decisions need to be made with reference to what God has already told us. But here, the man is claiming complete autonomy. He's claiming that he's completely independent. It's the essence of what sin is, being autonomous from God, rebellious from God, saying basically that you don't need God making himself the centre rather than God the centre. And it's here as an opportunity for the man to choose, to choose to follow God or choose to be autonomous, to show that we have that opportunity in our lives. We can listen to God or he gives us the opportunity to not listen. He doesn't force anyone to be his follower. And so God puts the man in this garden. Our third point, beginning at verse 15 there. With a specific purpose, to work it and to take care of it, according to verse 15. And that's because this isn't some magical garden. When I imagine the Garden of Eden, well, I start to think about purple clouds and and trees that might produce all sorts of magical fruit that I could only dream of. But... Whatever paintings or images we might think of, the Garden of Eden as it's presented here, it's real. It's not magical. It's sustained by God just as much as the world around us today is as well. But gardens, once planted, do not look after themselves. They are not self-perpetuating. Now, in uh, preparation for today's sermon somewhat, yesterday I found myself doing some gardening at a a property up in the Blue Mountains, one that was completely overgrown, one that had trees that were growing all over the place. If anyone has any idea about how terrible camphor laurel trees are once you tried to get rid of them and they just keep on sprouting up all other places as well, it's not the kind of garden that you would like. It's definitely the kind of garden that is a result of the fall. But even this perfect garden, this good garden, it needs someone to take care of it and to work it. And that's what the man is put there to do. He has a purpose, and it's a very good purpose as well, one given by God. But he's put there with one specific command. 
in verse 15. Sorry, verse 16. God says to the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, I don't want to take the thunder away from next week's sermon in Genesis 3, but I'm sure you can all see where this is headed. What terrible event this is foreshadowing. But what does it mean that he will certainly die? Because looking ahead to next week, we know that once he eats it, well, he doesn't die, does he? Not physically, But there's a worse death than even that. There is spiritual death that leads to physical death as well. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that they were previously dead in transgressions and sins. They were dead before God, dead spiritually. That is the real killer. And that is what instantly takes place for them when they eat that fruit. But going back to the garden as it is now, in this chapter, chapter 2, before anything bad has happened, it is a garden that is full of relationships, relationships between the man and the uh, animals, uh, between God and the man. But even though this garden is perfect, even though this is the best garden this man could hope for, there is still something that is not good in this garden. How strange for, for God to say that something is not good when sin hasn't entered the world. When he says in verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone, Well, here he's saying that it would not be good for the man to remain alone, to stay in the situation that he's in, because relationships matter, and relationships between people matter as well. Between uh, between men and women, and between men and men and women and women as well. As it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Two are better than one. If one falls down, he can help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone, though one may be overpowered? Two can defend himself. These relationships that it's talking about here, it's not just talking about marriage relationships. It's not as though someone who isn't married yet or never, never gets married or someone who had previously been married is not included in this image. We are a church family, aren't we? And so as a family, we can look after each other in that way. Everyone should be formed should be part of some kind of family, not just the nuclear family of a mum and dad and children. In fact, that kind of family works best when it welcomes other people into it as well to be blessed by it and be a blessing to them as well. It is not good for anyone to be alone. And that's something that you may have experienced in your own life or know others that they have experienced as well. And so as a church, we can be the family for people that maybe they do not have in some other way. Adam's situation here is incomplete and deficient while he was living without community 
or a proper counterpart for him as well. It is not good, but what will make it good? God says, I will make a a helper suitable for him. And so in verses 19 to 20, we see the need for a true helper because all the animals were brought to the man and he named them, but none of them were a true helper. Even the oxen that could have pulled the, uh, the carts for the grain, even the dogs that are known as man's best friend are not a true helper. No suitable helper was found. Now it's important here when it talks about the helper, it's not talking about someone who is subordinate. And we know this. Because in the Old Testament, the word, this word helper is most frequently used to describe God's relationship to his people Israel as their helper. He is their helper, but in no way is God subordinate or less powerful or less important than his people. And so Adam needs a helper, this kind of helper. A helper made in the image of God. Remember back in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Everyone is made in the image of God. It's not as though men are in God's image and then women are somehow lesser in men's image. No, everyone is in God's image. And... Everyone And this helper also, in verses 21 and 22, is made of the same stuff as man. It says there, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This is an amazing image of not someone who is subordinate, but someone who is made out of the same stuff, showing the closeness in relationships between men and women, epitomized in the relationship between men and women in marriage as something that reflects the relationship that all of us are part of in the great relationship between Christ and his church, which everyone who follows him is a part, whether they are married or not. But men and women are made to be together, to work together, to complement one another. Matthew Henry, the great 17th century British preacher, he said this about this verse. He said, Woman was not taken from man's feet, as if she were beneath him, or from his head, as if she were over him, but from his side, as an equal with him. And so relationships are at the heart of what it means to be human from this chapter that introduces humanity to us. So what is it that we can know about the Garden of Eden from this chapter? Well, it was not just a nice place. It was a sanctuary, a place that God chose to dwell like he would with the temple later on, but with an even greater closeness and intimacy that we can look forward to in the new creation. We can also know that it was good, but it was never complete. It didn't cover the whole world, and it wasn't meant to be a static thing that never changed. In fact, 
If you look at Revelation, the end of the Bible, in the image of the new creation, it is not a new garden. Instead, it's an image of a city, something that has progressed, something that has continued, and something that will continue to progress and develop in the New Testament as well, in the new creation as well. And then the last question that people often ask about the Garden of Eden, was it a real place? That's a good question, but not with a definitive answer. I think on the whole of it, it's very possible that there was a place that was a garden that God used to show his love and his relationship. Remember, it's not a magical place. It's a place that shows who God is and who we are as well. So very possibly, thousands of years ago, there was a place such as this. But either way, to try and find the exact geography is not the point of this passage. Yes, it mentions some rivers, some of which still exist today. But what it's really telling us is about who God is, his plan for creation. He is a creator And he put us in his creation for our good and for his glory as well. And so our relationship with God is important. Our relationship that is based on listening to who he is. Not being a law unto ourselves. Not being autonomous from his rule in our lives. Listening to him. And we do that today through his word to us in the Bible. Relationships are important with each other as well. We are all part of different family groups and we are all part of the family of God. And we also see in the last couple of verses that relationship breakdown matters as well. Relationship breakdowns, they matter too. In verse 25, we read that they were naked and they felt no shame. This is, of course, not just talking about their physical state between, before each other, but that is an image that represents the fact that there was no, not yet anything to drive a wedge between them, to bring shame. They were completely free in each other's company, a kind of freedom that we can again have in the new creation because of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he opens up for us before God, knowing that we have no shame in God's eyes, no guilt because Jesus paid the price for us. So who made this garden? Who was it for? Well, it's for us. It's for God's glory. And remember, as it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, Talking about Jesus Christ, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, there is, of course, a lot contained in that one verse there, but it at least includes this image of the garden. All things, including this garden, have been created through Jesus and for him as well. And so it is Jesus that we can thank for the blessing of the image of this garden And we can all look forward to its recreation, its development, and its continued growth uh, when he returns as well. So let me now pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this image that you give us of your garden.
Thank you that you created it and that you put people in it uh, to, to take care of it and to continue its growth. Lord, help us to take lessons from this passage, not to be laws unto ourselves, but to look for you in all things. Help us to know that human relationships truly do matter and that they are important for each of us. Help us to encourage each other in those relationships to look to you, to your will for our lives and your desire for us to grow in faith and love and trust in Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.